Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There was not a lot being done on black literary figures. And that's why I, I kind of took the responsibility to do that. Hey, y'all, I'm Donnie Walton. And this is Disha Filia. And welcome to the Ursa Podcast, where we geek out on all things short fiction. On this podcast, we'll interview authors, discuss collections and stories we love, and shine a light on new writers and those who never got their due. And at Ursa, we're not just talk, we're publishers too. Over at ursastory.com, we've created a new home for short fiction from some of today's most thrilling writers, as well as emerging voices, with stories you can read on your phone and audio stories that you can listen to right here in your favorite podcast app. We're doing all of this with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or by going to ursastory.com slash join. If you've checked out Ursa before, you may have heard our episode about a hidden figure of the literary world, Diane Oliver a young Black woman who published several pieces of fiction by the time of her death at age 22. Today, we're thrilled to go even deeper about her talent with our guest, the writer and cultural critic who first brought her to our attention, Michael A. Gonzalez. Welcome, Michael. Good afternoon. It's great to be here. Thank you. And to tell the people a little bit about you. um, So you're a Harlem native and a cultural critic, short story scribe, and essayist who's written for Vibe, The Source, The Paris Review, The Village Voice, Wax Poetics, The Wire UK, Long Reads, and Pitchfork. Your short fiction has appeared in Under the Thumb, Stories of Police Oppression, edited by S.A. Cosby, wonderful writer, Taint, 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 and also Black Pulp, edited by Gary Phillips. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for chatting with us today. I'm so happy that we're talking about Diane Oliver. I mean, as you know, I mean, she's somebody I just discovered a few months ago. And, you know, I've been researching her and writing about her and... It's been a, a thrill. Yeah. And it, as I mentioned in the intro, you're the reason we even know who she is because you reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing this article on Diane Oliver. I want to know, you know, get some thoughts from you about her work. And I was really embarrassed to say I had not heard of her. And so I just am really, you know, we we all are, you know, really thankful that you are reintroducing her to the, the reading public. Well, I have to tell you, you're not the only one. I mean, I didn't even even know about her until November. One of my friends was moving and in the process he sent me this anthology called Right On that was a book from 1971 of short black fiction and for some reason I always say that the gods directed me to this story. I just opened up the book and I honed in on her story and I read Neighbors and after reading Neighbors I was like oh my goodness like I needed to know more about this woman. I couldn't understand you know why so many literate and literary people I knew had never heard of this, had never heard of Diane Oliver. So I was intrigued, not just by her work, but by her legacy. And so I just started digging. I mean, thank God there's issues of 
Black World, and which was actually called Negro Digest first, and then it became Black World. That's where I found a few of her short stories. And I also found out some autobiographical facts about her that helped me along in putting together this essay on her that's actually on the Bitter Southerner now. Amazing. Yeah. You know, her name was also some a name that was completely new to me. And we discussed those stories from Negro Digest in depth and, and health service and traffic jam. We both just really, really love those stories. And we're sort of astonished by um, the talent that she had in The Promise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we found we were kind of doing some rudimentary research about her writing, there was really scant information available about her. You know, we found, I think, four stories of her online, and we learned a little bit of biographical information about her North Carolina roots. And we also knew she was just mere days away, really, from earning her MFA at uh, Iowa Writers Workshop when she was killed in a motorcycle accident. So I just wonder if you can take us through a little bit of your research process in sort of like really digging into it and what new details you were able to discover? Well, you know, whenever I I get attached to a subject, I become obsessed. And I don't really go to the library as much as I used to, but I was able to find a lot of things online. I mean, when I start researching, I go to Google, but I also look at every search engine that I could possibly think of. I look at Yahoo, I look at Bing, I go to Google Images and see if I could find anything. I go to Google Books, which is where I found a lot of stuff. There was things that had been done for some academic journals on her background. And I found some information about her old writing teacher, who was uh, one of her mentors, a, a guy named Pete Taylor, who I had never heard of either, but apparently he was a major short story writer in the 40s and 50s. And the New York Times had called him one of the best short story writers. I mean, there's just so much information. You just have to know where to look for it. And so I just had a lot of patience and just started digging. Yeah, just um, one of the first things you mentioned is the anthology you found right on, and I was like, "Wait, this is not this is not the teen like I don't know." That's like, exactly what right I thought too. I was so confused. It, 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 it came out actually around the same time, and I, I don't know who because I mean, I'm a I'm a writer on baby. Okay, I grew up on writer on magazine, okay. and they yes. even they yes. even spelled it. I mean, they even had the with the okay. exclamation with the, with the exclamation mark. mark. I was like, who but you know I, I was like let me find out she was right for right on oh magazine oh my god no but but <laughs> you know right on you know in the 70s there were a lot of black anthologies in the 60s and the 70s a lot of black anthologies that had black short stories black plays black poetry i mean i don't really see them i mean like nowadays i'll see singular collections but i won't see like a wide collection you know what i mean that has a lot of different writers that's part of a collective or part of a generation or whatever and so right on was you know i've never even seen this book in used bookstores and believe me i used to live in used bookstores well that sort of segues into the next question that i have for you so i you know i very much appreciate not only a man who reads, but a man who reads stories by and about women. And you're a writer. And as writers, we are often finding inspiration in each other. So just wanted to ask you, what in these stories by her spoke most deeply to you, Michael, as a as a writer or as a reader? 
um, I, I liked reading about the South, you know, during Jim Crow or coming out of Jim Crow, but she wrote about it with such sensitivity and she just had a, a style about her that just kind of pulled you into the stories. You know, I hope this doesn't come across as an insult or anything, but it wasn't like over-intellectualized or, you know, anything that was above your head. It, to me, it was just like she wrote this and there was a style to it, but it was also a simplistic kind of way of bringing you into these topics. I loved it because it kind of reminded me of reading Shirley Jackson, who like could make the everyday kind of horrifying. And we all know racism, you know, whether it was during Jim Crow or yesterday is scary. You know, um, especially when you're put in certain situations, you know, when you read the story Neighbors and you realize, you know, this family is having to deal with whether or not to send their six-year-old son to integrate a school the following day and the repercussions that can come from that, whether it's, you know, somebody spits on him or somebody shoots him. I mean, this is what they were having to deal with. And you're like, you know, if she opens the story with that tension of the protagonist, who's the boy's older sister, and you just kind of follow it through. And I I've read a lot of stories from that era, and she just pulled me into it. You know, I mean, she's writing about the South from, you know, from the perspective of somebody who's finished school and gone to college, but she also has, she also knows these people. I mean, these were the people that were a part of her community as well. I mean, I think a lot of times people don't realize that Jim Crow and segregation is like, you could be living down the block from a black millionaire, but he couldn't go anywhere because of, you know, these rules or whatever. So, she saw a lot that was going on. I mean, her parents were educators. So she saw a lot in terms of what was going on with the integration at that period. And in terms of her, you know, would love if you could shed any more light on her background, her family life. She she was pretty middle class, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at pictures of her, she has this almost debutante kind of look, you know, she looks very middle class, you know, like the kind of, of young black women that were featured on the society pages of Jet and Ebony. And it was kind of funny because I, a year before, was writing about people who came out of, out of like, you know, the Jack and Jill's or people who came out of more educated black society. And she was one of those kind of people. But at the same time, I think a lot of times, or we perceive people of that, what do we call it, that station or whatever, to look down on these on people who have less than them. And maybe some of them do, but she wasn't that kind of person. You get us a, a, a understanding from her. I mean, there's like, you know, she may not have lived through all the things that she wrote about, but she wasn't telling any lies. I mean, she knew what she was talking about. When you said, uh, you know, that class of folks, I immediately thought about Lawrence Otis Graham's Our Kind of People. Yes, yes. And so she has, Diane Oliver has that background on paper, you know, pun, no pun intended, but then her stories, as you said, you know, not only do they focus on, you know, working class folks, but she does it in a way that's not othering and it's not diminishing. It's very yes. respectful. It's not judgmental at all. 
You know, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, with the exception of what was the story, the closet on the top of the stairs where she writes, I, I found that in in the anthology. So I'm not sure if you read that, but that was about the young black woman who goes to college and she's the only black person there and what she's dealing with with her classmates and roommates and that kind of stuff to the point where it literally drives her crazy. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's deep. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's more like, you know, this is what racism can do. You know, I mean, people don't understand the anxiety or the stress that comes with people who look at you like you're a creature or who looks at you like you're so different or whatever. And the the girls in the college, they didn't say anything to her face, but they whispered a lot and they looked a lot. And, you know, to the point where, I mean, she literally went into the closet and didn't want to come out. I'm glad you brought that story up because that was actually one of the ones that we could not find, the closet on the top floor. And the other was Mint Julep's Not Served Here. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Because I'm very curious. Mint Julep's was, oh my God, it was like this wild kind of gothic story about these Black people who basically just go live in the woods and they didn't want to be, you know, they didn't want to have to live under white authority. And it's a very brutal kind of story. I I don't want to give away too much of it, but literally that one was like more of the Southern Gothic kind Mm. of thing, you know, like the kind of stories that like Flattery O'Connor or Faulkner or, you know, even early Truman Capote might have, you know, I've always loved those kind of stories of people who really don't want to be bothered with civilized world, people who kind of cut themselves off from, you know, whether it's the government or whatever, you know, they just want to live their lives and be left alone. And basically, Mint Juleps is about a couple with their mute son who wants to be left alone and they're not left alone. And you also mentioned, you know, you sort of saw an influence, like a horror kind of influence in some of these stories and, you know, reminded you in some ways of the work of Jordan Peele. And I'm just sort of wondering um, what other kinds of influences or what artists do you kind of see Diane Oliver in their work? To tell you the truth, I'm a big fan of Shirley Jackson. Like, I love the lottery. I love her short stories. And I don't know if Diane Oliver had ever read or even knew who Shirley Jackson was. I mean, you know, she was a bright young woman. She was living in New York in the early 60s when... Shirley Jackson was publishing in The New Yorker. Um, So I don't know if that was ever an influence, but to me, it was almost like she kind of brought to mind uh, Shirley Jackson and like Flannery O'Connor. And I like horror stories that aren't necessarily about like people getting killed off or a lot of blood or whatever. I, you know, I like psychological, psychological horror, horror, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or even like the kind Mm -hmm. of horror, like the Asian directors were doing at one time. Like you always feel like there's some creepiness going on. You don't know exactly what it is, but it just feels scary. And to me, Mm -hmm. like I wasn't really trying to say that she was a horror writer, but you know, 
I was just equating racism with horror. And like, to me, like a prime example of that is like looking at one of my favorite movies and one of the scariest movies is the original Night of the Living Dead, right? And you're like, you know, after this guy has battled with zombies all night long, he gets killed by a white gang, you know? And it's like... For real? Like mm. this guy, this brother, you know, this black guy fought zombies all night, but the thing that killed him was the white mob. Right. And that's kind of, uh, you know, when I was reading Diane's stories, like even reading Neighbors, I mean, it was like, what's going to happen? Yeah, I was going to say the tension of them in that house sort of waiting exactly. for something to happen, waiting through the night, trying to make this decision. There's lots of tension in that. I, I mean, okay, I guess this is a spoiler, but I didn't, like the way they decided at the end not to send the boy to school, I was shocked. Because like every civil rights story you read or you, you see on a PBS special is about how, you know, the family said, okay, forget all of that. We're going to send this kid to school anyway. And and this family was like, you know what? We don't need this. (laughs) See, I read it as an ambiguous ending. I thought it was a little gray. I think I originally read it as they didn't send him, but it was a little, yeah, it was a little uncertain. But whether they sent him or not, it was still, like you said, the tension that was going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the tension of, you know, when she's on the bus, She's already thinking about this. I mean, this is like obsessed her whole life. You know, she's walking through the neighborhood and everybody from the neighborhood bum to the neighborhood gossip is talking about this little boy going to integrate the school. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on them. And then there's a lot of like, you know, what's going to happen? Are they going to kill this kid? Are they going to blow up the house? Or, you know, you just, you don't know. Yeah. The closet on the top floor, the way you describe it, so a character who is being watched and examined by a sort of white gaze kind of actually had me thinking a little bit about another part of your essay. So you also spoke with one of Diane Oliver's, I think, was she an acquaintance from the Iowa Writers Workshop? Suzanne McConnell? Yes. So So I went to Iowa Writers Workshop. I will say it's a very different place. Um, I actually found some wonderful community. There were several Black women in my class, and we were able to sort of, you know, build a family and find our readers among each other. And I know that that was not the case for her in, in the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, I think when she went, it was, it might have been like, I mean, it was relatively new. I don't even know if it had the same kind of cachet that it has today. I mean, the the fact that she and John Edgar Wyman were there at the same time, I kind of guess indicates what kind of program it was. You know, like these were like some serious writers coming out of there. But when she went, I don't know if if she realized how much ground she was breaking. I kind of wonder if she felt supported or actually that she was known. I mean, I think, so you you quote uh, Suzanne McConnell as saying that Diane seemed cautious and careful, but I suppose considering what she was surrounded by, she had to be that way. But I found it really telling that when um, Suzanne McConnell 
sort of wrote about Diane Oliver's death around the time, she actually got a lot wrong. Like she got the last name wrong, her place of origin wrong. And I'm not really sure what question I'm trying to ask, but just how did that strike you in in terms of learning about Diane's life and her experience that she might have found herself in at such a tender age? I think we we have to realize that a lot of this happened years ago. I mean, this was in 1966 when, you know, they were, there and I think when Suzanne wrote about it later on, it was like thirty years later. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, she wrote about it for. I mean, she actually went back and made some corrections to the essay, but you know, I don't think any of it was like really intentional. I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Well, I, you know, I'll I'll share how I reacted to that because we were kind of looking to her, and and this was us reading, you know, your essay, Michael, as someone who was there. And I think it speaks volumes about something that happens to so many of us as Black folks, specifically Black writers in white spaces. There's our experience and our perception of it. And then there's white people's perception of our experiences, right? Exactly. And so, you know, so Suzanne is saying, you know, she had to be, you know, felt like she had to be careful and, and cautious. Um, you know, she was very thoughtful and not wild at all. And I said, wait, hold up. Did she expect Diane to be wild? Why? You know, and and so <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I have I have to confess that came out because we were discussing another writer that I had written about. Okay. And the other writer I had written about had this whole wild background of booze and drugs and everything. And so Suzanne was telling me that Diane was the opposite of that. Gotcha. Okay. But I think the larger issue, you know, because in general, you know, I think I'm always skeptical, right? And, you know, Suzanne says that she got along well with the fellow students. And I, you know, it just made me kind of wish that we had more that we could hear more from Diane herself. And then we think about the story of the closet at the top of the stairs, how much of that reflected how Diane actually felt in, in white academic spaces, you know? You're right. You're and right. Um, so I had this, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, what I'm calling her tr- Diane's triple consciousness as a black woman building on Du Bois's concept of how black folks have the double consciousness, you know, but as a black woman, this triple consciousness. And so, you know, we, those of us who are writing today, like the three of us, you know, we can shout from the rooftops. We've got social media. We've, the future generations won't have to wonder so much about, you know, the three of us. But I'm thinking now more broadly, and, and would love your thoughts on this, Michael, about Black literary legacies and how they're shaped. You know, who gets to tell the storyteller stories? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because, I mean, that was one of the reasons I started writing these literary essays in the first place. I first started writing it for Catapult. I was writing a column over there called The Blacklist. Mm-hmm. And basically, I, I came up with The Blacklist because I wanted to write about writers that basically had kind of were out of print. Um, a lot of people hadn't heard of them. So the first one that I did was Negrophobia by Darius James. And then I later on wrote about Henry Dumas, Kirsten Hunter, who wrote The Landlord, and Julian Mayfield. I- I'm fascinated with Black writers' lives anyway. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. But then when you read about these, I mean, writers who, I mean, it was a different time, a different era. And, you know, just so many writers who, you know, were 
big names at one time, they kind of fade away sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know why that is. I mean, I think I, my whole thing was I saw like, there was like a new reissue of some beat generation novel. And I'm like, how many damn beat generation novels mm. do we need? You know, like how many reissues of William Burroughs and Jack Kerouac mm-hmm. can one person stand, you know? And, and meanwhile, you know, Julia Mayfield is out of print. Charlotte Carter is out of print. Um, Henry Dumas is out of print. You know, these books are going for hundreds of dollars on Amazon. And nobody, black, white, or whatever, hardly knows who these people are. You know, Henry Dumas is probably the most famous because he was a, a discovery of Toni Morrison's, you know, after his death. And, you know, she published a few of his stories. But, you know, there was not a lot being done on you know, black literary figures. And that's why I, I kind of took the responsibility to do that. I mean, I, I wrote an essay on Ronald L. Fair, who wrote the, the novel that Cornbread Earl and me is based on. I wrote an essay about him for a book. And that kind of started me on this whole thing. I mean, he was a Chicago writer, not a contemporary of Richard Wright's, but, you know, like a generation afterwards. And he wrote three novels and basically just kind of faded away. I mean, and so when I wrote about Cornbread Earl and Me was because, you know, it was based on this black exploitation movie that I grew up with, you know, Larry Fishburne's first movie. And that was one of my first essays on black literary writers. And then I'm, you know, for Catapult. And I'm telling you, it's it's fulfilling to me because I want people to know about these writers. I, you know, I always feel like there's a shame, you know, that these writers aren't better known. Mm-hmm. And nothing against, you know, I, I love all the big names. I love Toni Morrison. I love James Baldwin. But, you know, a lot of times people act like those are the only two. And right, right so much more there's so much more now there's so much more 30 years ago one thing that Disha and I discussed when we went very deep with with the stories we sort of noticed the four stories that we read were about women and sometimes the choices that women make so we read Neighbors, Key to the City, Health Service, and Traffic Jam. And they all kind of end mm-hmm. on, a lo- on a note of resignation, looking at a choice that the, the women characters are kind of either forced to make, circumstance has forced them to make it. And so we kind of thought, you know, wow, you know, if Diane Oliver had lived longer, how might that have changed? You know, might she have written work where the characters are a little bit more, you know, a little bit more rebellious or a little bit more kind of not resigned in that in that same way? And so I was just curious how you think that Diane Oliver might have evolved as a writer, um, how her sensibilities might have changed had she lived longer. I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to have read a novel from her. You know, I would have loved to see in what direction she would have gone in. I mean, you know, Diane Oliver's, I mean, she had been writing for a few years before her death in 1966. But I think like some of those uh, last stories, she was becoming a better writer, a more haunting writer. A lot of times the stories just felt richer. And 
you know, during that era, I don't, you know, I grew up in, in the 70s. So I remember my mom having books from like Antazaki Shange and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and, you know, writers like that. But like, we didn't have a lot of the 60s stuff except for in anthologies. So I don't know where Diane Oliver would have would have gone because she kind of was in the middle of you know like between generations it would be curious to find out where she would have gone i mean i don't know if there was any archives i'm sure there must have been notes well i do know she does have i think a thesis on file at the university of iowa that i've been trying to figure out how to get my hands on yes, oh, really? yes. Really? So i kind of started the process and i'm trying to figure out how to do it but and oh, i'm not wonderful. even sure you know it might be versions of work that was already published posthumously because i do know that negro digest did a couple of posthumous stories by her but it's fascinating to know that there could be work uh, of hers there that unfortunately never saw the light of day You know, one of the things that we were touching on was just talking about being a Black person in a right writer's group. And, you know, I'm sure all of us have dealt with that at one time. I mean, I was, when I started writing, I was writing more fantasy stories as opposed to more realistic stories. So I didn't have a lot of kickback, but I've heard so many horror stories from brilliant writers, Black writers, Puerto Rican writers, Dominican writers, of the things that they had to endure when they were part of all white writer circles or all white writers groups or whatever, whether it was a lack of understanding or people just zoned out on their stories because they didn't feel they were important or something. And, you know, I don't get any of that from Diane's writings, but I'm sure she must have. I mean, I, I wonder how she overcame being the only one, yeah. not just the only uh, you know, I mean, the only black woman in this group. I mean, we were dealing with a time that where, you know, sexism and, you know, misogyny on campus was rampant. I mean, you know, people think academics is a goody goody, but, you know, we know differently. And, you know, being in 19 in the mid 60s, when all of this stuff was going, I mean, even her, her white writing professor from undergrad, Peter Taylor, you know, he encouraged her writing, but he didn't want her to get too mixed up in writing about civil rights or writing yep. about race, or it's the same kind of thing where, you know, they want you to do well, but then they want you to do what they want you to Their do. Their way. Well, and you know, and I, I read that in your essay where you mentioned that, you know, that was sort of his guidance for her. And I love that clearly she ignored him. <laughs> and she absolutely, oh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. wrote about, not only did she write about the civil rights movement, but she wrote about, she didn't, she wasn't on like that respectability tip, you know, she was writing yeah. about working class people. She was writing about, you know, women in marriages that weren't great and that she was writing about women, you know, and because so much of the narrative around the civil rights movement that we've been given in fiction and nonfiction does focus on men and, right. and the women, you know, are always in the, you know, relegated to the background, but she centers the women in her fiction. Mm -hmm. So she not only ignored, um, you know, her 
professor's guidance, but she took it even further around class and gender. And um, so, you know, I'm getting like real badass vibes from her. That is true. Yes. And I do, you know, as someone who has been through sort of the institutional workshop experience, it's just as important to know what to ignore as it is what advice to listen to. And yeah, your ear becomes very attuned to that kind of thing. So the fact that she was able to do that Thank God for it. Yeah, I mean, I I found that, I mean, you know, I had a good friend of mine, I'm not going to say his name, but he wrote an excellent novel. And he told me when he was in the writer's workshop that people were just saying negative stuff to him or like, you know, spouting off or saying stuff is too racial. I don't know why it's always too racial when it's about us. Well, that's that's hard for, (laughs) this is making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Right, right. But you know, I mean, but it's like, I mean, you don't even have to write about stuff to make them uncomfortable to be uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, you can write about like driving around in your hoopty through the hoods, you know, smoking a blunt, listening to Earth and the Fire, and they're like, I don't understand. Like, why don't you understand? Like, what the hell? Or it's okay <laughs> if you don't understand. It's that they're not centered when they're, you know, it, there's there's something to be said for writing, or not writing, but I'm sorry, reading work that where you and people like yourself aren't centered. Like, you know, there the benefits of that and the pleasure of that. And I think it's hard for people who are used to being centered in literature to then not yeah. be. Well, I mean, yeah. I think as black writers, I mean, I know even with me growing up, I mean, you know, I was blessed that I had somebody at home who actually read black work. I mean, because most a lot of writers, you know, they don't read black fiction or black writers, other black writers until they're in college or something. You know, I mean, I was reading Antizaki Shange when I was a kid. I mean, I was like, you know, reading for colored girls and books of poetry and, you know, the stuff that my mother had on her shelf because she never, you know, censored me from reading anything. But at the same time, it's like there's so many writers that I know who, you know, didn't discover those voices until years later. So, you know, a lot of times they don't know how to write about themselves. You know, they I always tell people that two of my biggest influences growing well, one of my biggest influences growing up was Richard Pryor, because the way he wrote about the hood. You know, I mean, a lot of writers, they don't have those kind of influences. And, you know, they may even try to write white, quote unquote, and you know, that doesn't work too much either. I can think of a writer who told me something similar that, you know, they thought, you know, as a Black writer, that to write seriously, you know, to be taken seriously, to be considered a literary writer, that they had to center white folks. And then, but, you know, thankfully, this is a writer who eventually was like, nah, I'm not doing that. But I think some people do get stuck. There, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, or even just think about Toni Morrison, that uh, that New York Times critic that wrote about, I believe it was the bluest eye, and was so condescending and referred to it as provincial, and hoped that Morrison would eventually grow up and stop writing about black people and black life. Unbelievable! It's wild. It's, it's, you it's know? crazy. Like I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of those guys, especially one of my heroes is Chester Hines, and Chester Hines was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And you know, you know, some of his early literary novels before he started writing the the Harlem um, gangster novels, but you know, people were you know, basically dismissive of it. And part of him going to Europe, I mean, I don't even know if he was ever really happy in Europe. He was just less mad. 
<laughs> but you know, I mean, part of that was like, you know, him and James Baldwin both, they were like, you know, if we stay in America too much longer, we're going to wind up hurting somebody or killing somebody. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of that probably came from dealing with editors who didn't understand where they were coming from. Uh, even when Richard Wright published his landmark books, uh, Native Son and Black Boy, there's chunks of it that's taken out by the Book Club of America, which was a big sponsor, to because they didn't want to make people uncomfortable. You know, I mean, it's like... Wow, you know, I, I when I read that 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 was an actual thing. I mean, I was, I was really hurt for Richard Wright, you know. Yeah, I am just thankful for this conversation that we yes. you know, got to speculate a little bit. We got to celebrate Diane Oliver a little bit, and I just, you know, I think about what Alice Walker did for Zora Neale Hurston and what um, Dr. Harriet Mullen did for Fran Ross. Um, and Michael, I really hope that your efforts, um, not just for Diane Oliver, but for all of these writers who are out of print, you know, can have the same kind of effect and introduce these writers to, uh, you know, to, I was going to say another generation, but, you know, hell, our generation right. Um, right. You know, and generations to come and, and really give them their, their rightful place um, in our canons and, and on our shelves. Well, I, I will say if anybody wants to read more of underappreciated or out of print black writers, they can go to Catapult and read the my column, The Blacklist. The Ronald L. Fair essay on Cornbread and Me was actually published in a book called Sticking It to the Man, Counterculture and Pulp and Popular Fiction, 1950 to 1980. And yeah, I mean, those are really good places to start, I think. And I hope more Black writers, um, you know, I I know one of the writers that I wrote about actually got back into print, Charlotte Carter, who wrote the jazz mystery novel, uh, Rhode Island Red. Her books actually got picked up again because of my essay. And so wow. I, was, I was very happy about that. You know, like some of the writers, they're, they're still alive. I mean, you know, they're not dead. They've just been pushed out or pushed away or whatever. But, you know, Charlotte Carter got all her books reprinted and she's coming out with a new novel next year. So Amazing. Thank you so much for that work. I am going to bookmark that catapult column and also try to find that anthology right on. I, I need to get my hands on Oh, yeah, one. you would like that. You would like that. I mean, I could do a yeah. whole episode. <laughs> okay. The right on yes. episode. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Michael A. Gonzalez, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I, I was so happy to be here, and I'm glad we got it together. Me too. And if you enjoyed today's conversation and want more, Become an URSA member today by subscribing an Apple podcast or by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help us produce our original stories and you'll support our work on this podcast as we turn you on to our favorite writers and short stories. You can support this podcast by leaving a review and comment in Apple podcasts. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>